0: People like to complain about airports. The food's overpriced, the air is stale, the, the people are often less than friendly. It's just an uncomfortable place to spend a few hours while you're waiting for your flight. But i found that what makes airports a little more bearable for me is the fact that I know I'm going home. It's the prospect of returning back to where you belong. The sure hope that you're going to get off that plane back to your loved ones back to the place that you call home. And that gives a sense of relief. It gives a sense that this is just a temporary affliction, my stay here in this airport. You could almost say that the temporary afflictions of the airport pale in comparison to the glory of going home. This might be a cheesy example, but I think it proves the point about what First Peter is trying to stress First Peter is about that longing for home and how it gives us perspective when we feel displaced. First Peter frames the experience of the early church as one of exile. What happens in exile is you are people displaced and you're seeking a homeland. You're waiting to return back to the place that you belong. And that's what he says the Christian life is. It's, It's one longing life that longs for the secure and eternal home of the new creation in the midst of suffering, in the temporary trials of the present one. And this longing for home is what Peter refers to as faith. And that faith is dynamic. It animates our present action. It animates us toward holiness and submission, even in times of suffering. It gives us a vitality to our Christian lives. So we seek to embody the life of the new creation that Christ has brought in his death, resurrection, and ascension. We embody the resurrection power that he has given to us by setting our minds on our true eternal hope in the midst of present trials and suffering and pursuing holiness as we seek to obey God. This is Understanding 1 Peter. 1 Peter begins, like most of the New Testament epistles, with a greeting, an introduction of the person who's writing the letter, and that person is the Apostle Peter. And what's fascinating about 1 and 2 Peter is that it gives us a unique glimpse into the mind of the early church's greatest leader. Peter began following Christ as a brash young man in the Gospels, but now here he is writing these two letters as this wise sage tempered by his own personal failures and trials. And he's also awaiting his execution at the hands of the Roman Emperor Nero. He knows his death is fast approaching. And whenever you have somebody writing words to people, writing letters as they approach their own death, you get their best stuff. He's not wasting any words. He wants the church to know after his death, what it means to follow Christ, and where they can locate their hope in the midst of their own trials and sufferings. So let's read the first two verses with that in mind, and we'll talk about them. Verses 1 to 2 of 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So right off the bat, we are introduced to Peter, who refers to himself as an apostle. And an apostle is a sent one. It's a representative appointed by Jesus Christ himself personally. It's a unique role of authority that does not exist today. Peter possesses unique authority to speak in a binding way upon the church because he is a representative, a mouthpiece of Jesus Christ himself. So Christ is speaking through Peter to remind the church that they live as elect exiles of the dispersion, and they're scattered all throughout the region of Asia Minor. Now, those three words, elect, exile, and dispersion, draw upon the story of Old Testament Israel. God chose or elected Israel out of all the nations to be a light to the nations and to be his chosen people. Israel failed in this task due to their own sin, and they went into exile as a form of discipline. And even when Israel returned to the land, the vast majority of their people remained scattered throughout the world in what is called the dispersion. Now, what's interesting is that Peter applies these Old Testament words for Israel to the New Testament church of Jews and Gentiles. In fact, Peter's primary audience of 1 Peter are Gentiles, people who are outside of Judaism, who have converted, who have put their trust in Jesus the Messiah and are now grafted into the story of Israel. They're grafted into the kingdom of God. They're wrapped up in God's redemptive purposes by their faith. So the church, just like Old Testament Israel, lives in a time of exile in which they find themselves estranged from the world and undergoing various trials as they long for home. But their hope lies in the fact that God has chosen them for exile. That that idea of being chosen is really important. Israel experienced trials in both the wilderness, as they were going on their way to the promised land, and during the Babylonian exile. But both of those came about according not to the will of man, but God. That's why Peter stresses that the church's exile experience comes according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. They know that God will end their exile and bring them home because he's the one who brought them into exile. The same God who is sovereign over their trials is sovereign over their salvation. God brought them out of Egypt And he will bring them to the promised land. And God has taken us out of the Egypt of slavery to sin and will bring us to the promised land of the new creation in which we will receive resurrected bodies and experience a new world devoid of the corruption and decay of sin and death. And that whole completion of the redemption of all things, the renewal of all things, is what Peter refers to as salvation. Salvation always comes as a gift of love, from the triune God. Notice Peter's early Trinitarian theology. Isn't this fascinating? Salvation comes from the foreknowledge of God the Father, who plans our redemption, in the sanctification of the Spirit, who set us apart, that's what to sanctify means, to be holy, and finally for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. God planned to set us apart by his Spirit to obey Jesus and receive purification from sin and death by his blood. All the persons of the Trinity work with one will to accomplish our salvation. And that means that we are recipients of his infinite grace and peace. And that leads Peter to praise God for his salvation. Salvation is a gracious gift from our God to us that he has wholly accomplished by himself. And again, that leads to the next few verses in verses 3 to 5. When we think about salvation, we think at the moment that you put your trust in Christ, you are justified. That is, you are counted righteous and you are made right with God. Now, that is certainly salvation in a narrow sense, but that's not the way that Peter is using it. When Peter speaks about salvation, he's speaking in a broad sense about the totality of God's redemption. When he says salvation, he means complete deliverance from both the presence and the power and penalty of sin and death. So that's actually more than just both. That's three things. But you get the idea. What, what he's saying is this. When we talk about being saved, we mean we're, we're saved from the penalty of death. We trust in Christ. We're no longer under his wrath. So in that sense, we're saved. But we're also being saved in that God is purifying us from sin. And one day we will be saved. We will be fully redeemed at the resurrection of our bodies And the bringing of the new creation. And that's what Peter's talking about. That final deliverance. The final overthrow of death and sin. In which we will no longer be in their presence anymore. That's what he means by salvation. So that's still a future event. But notice what he says about this. Salvation comes solely by God's grace. Not our works. It's according to his mercy. Remember in the beginning. And it happens through a historical event. It's something that actually happened in history, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection brings about a new birth that leads to a living hope. So new birth, again, refers not just to our personal conversion, what we commonly refer to as being born again, but the beginning of God's renewal of all creation started in Jesus Christ. But just as our new birth does not instantly eradicate our sin or mortality, neither does creation's new birth instantly deal with sin, evil, and corruption in the world. This is why our new birth points us to a living hope. Because we're going to find out later, Peter says you're born again to a living hope, and yet you still suffer in the present. In other words, you have a foretaste of the final salvation, but it's not yet here. And because it's not yet here, you're still going to suffer and deal with sin in this life. Right? And that's where hope comes in. Hope points us forward to something we do not yet possess. And Peter speaks about that as an inheritance. A child may receive rights to an inheritance, but he doesn't possess it until he comes of age. Similarly, we as Christians have a right to our future inheritance when we believe in Christ. But we don't possess it yet until the last time when Christ returns. This does not mean that heaven is the new creation, that we go to a new creation. This is what's interesting. But rather that heaven houses new creation, right? This inheritance is housed in heaven waiting there until its final revelation when Christ returns. And we see this new creation symbolized in Revelation 21, when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth. So Christ's resurrection provides the first fruits of the final harvest of our resurrection. Right? So he's saying, look, one day there will be this new creation, but it's being kept back until the final day. And in the meantime, while you're waiting... You exercise faith, hoping for that final home, when, when God actually makes this world our true home, when he renews it and brings about resurrection. Now, faith comes by the power of God, that we are guarded through faith by God's power. If you think about faith, it's like a shield, right? If you exercise faith, first of all, it's God exercising it in and through you, but through faith is how you endure the trials of life. Right. Satan shoots his fiery arrows at you and faith is the shield that protects you and keeps you going forward and keeps you ahead at that final inheritance. Again, think about the Israelites in the wilderness. They were so tempted to turn back, so tempted to turn away. In fact, many of them didn't make it to the promised land. And the exhortation here is don't turn back. By faith, keep trekking, keep going forward, keep enduring the trials in the wilderness because there will be a promised land. Faith is active, and it is the very power of God in us causing us to endure, and the fruit of this faith is joy. That's verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter gives a counterintuitive command to rejoice in the midst of suffering. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody likes trials, but we also know that nobody escapes trials. And God tells us that behind every trial lies his good purpose, his purpose to test our faith in order to reveal its genuineness. He uses the example of when you purify gold, you put it through fire and it burns away the dross and the impurities. But even gold in fire is going to melt away. But he says your, your faith is more precious than gold. It's more powerful than gold, that it will not burn away. And the trials reveal the faith that you have, not so that God can know your faith, but so that you can know your faith. God uses the fire of affliction to reveal our faith, which on the last day will result in praise and glory and honor. So you're not always going to see the purposes of the trials in your life. You're kind of like a marathon runner, right? You're, you're, you're not going to experience the joy until you hold the trophy. But you have the trophy in mind as you traverse many, many more miles. But unlike the marathon runner, we know our victory is actually secured in Christ. And that's why we can say we don't see Christ, but we by faith love him. Right? And this is from Peter who saw Christ and he's going, it's actually better that you don't see him because you exercise faith. And just as Christ calls us to await his coming, we, we, we have this longing to see him again. So that means that most of the Christian life is going to be marked again just, just by longing for Christ that there will be an element of, of our, our faith not being complete because we don't fully see Christ as we one day will see him. And that's supposed to create some longing. And you probably feel this in your life. You're like, man, you you struggle with moments of darkness. You don't feel God's presence. You feel alienated from God. We all feel these moments. And that's a result of our life as sinners, right? We We only see in part. We don't have the fullness of our relationship with Christ that we one day will. So even... The down days of your Christian life are meant to give you a sense of longing. It won't always be this way. Faith won't always be so difficult. One day we will see the one whom we love face to face, but until then we can still love him. We love him by virtue of our faith, by trusting in his word. And that motivates us to run the race well and to obtain the goal of our faith, salvation, right? The goal of your running is to, get to the finish line. And the goal of our faith is to energize us so that we endure the trials of life so that we make it to the end. And salvation, again, in, in the Bible refers to many things. It can refer either to our initial salvation or the final salvation from the presence of sin. And that's what Paul's, I'm sorry, Peter, that's what Peter is referring to here. He's saying that the finish line is one day you will go to a time in which everything is renewed and all the trials will fade away. And what will be left is your joy. Right, That even the trials in your life are working to build in you a glorious future. And then on the last day, when people looked around and they said, why is he still being faithful despite this trial? What about all the suffering and persecution and alienation you felt? You didn't get any reward for that in your life. Well, One day, that reward will be revealed. That the people who were faithful to Christ will be revealed in their glory. In this life, they're going to look like the refuse of the world. They're going to look like the lowest of people. But on the last day, God's going to reverse the verdict. and He's going to show to the whole world, these people who are faithful, they're the ones who are the victors. And that's what he wants us to have in mind. Don't follow the world's narrative of success, but rather let the word of God shape your mind and point you toward that final hope so that you would be faithful. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the deliverance of your souls, the final deliverance from sin's grip in your life. And then he goes on and talks about how the gospel, this good news, is actually old news. This is verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So Peter is saying this pattern of suffering in the present while awaiting future glory is present throughout all of the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ's own death and resurrection fulfills that theme that we see in the Old Testament. Now, I don't think any of the prophets in the Old Testament saw a picture of Jesus when they were writing their prophecies, but rather they saw the theme of suffering than glory, right? You suffer in slavery, but then you're brought into freedom, into a promised land. You suffer in exile, but you'll be brought and restored to the land. Right? You think about Jonah, three days in the belly of the whale, then he is resurrected back onto land. Or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who suffers for the sins of Israel, and yet he becomes the conquering king. All of these motifs are there. It's like a musical theme. And with Christ, that musical theme now gets a brass section and drums and it's amplified because Jesus takes all of those themes of suffering than glory and embodies them in himself. And in that way, the prophets are preparing the message for us. It's fascinating what he says. He says that the prophets were, were, were when they were prophesying, it was not just for their generation, but it was primarily for us in light of Christ to look back and go, they were preparing the way for us to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. They wrote it not for their generation, but for future generations. And he says that the spirit of Christ, I love that, right? It means that Christ was speaking all those words in the Old Testament. He's not just speaking the red letters in the Gospels. He's speaking all the black letters in the Old Testament. It's his spirit. He's writing that. And the spirit of Christ is also known as the Holy Spirit. So so here we have an argument for the inspiration of scripture, that the, the words of the Bible are the words of God himself. And he says, Just as the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ spoke through the prophets of old, so now the Spirit, that same Spirit, speaks through these new prophets, the apostles, with the good news, the gospel, the fulfillment of all those things from before. And I love how he says, these are things into which angels long to look. There's like a balcony full of angels who've been watching God's plan, and now they're going, wow, this is the climax Everything that we've been watching is coming to a head. This is exciting. It's all of heaven. The heavenly host is watching this unfold in the stage of history. And that glorious hope, that glorious story is what leads to holiness. It's not just that God did these things, but that by faith, we get wrapped up into the story that God is telling. And that changes every aspect of our lives. And the primary thing it changes is it turns us into people of holiness who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So Peter gives a kind of military charge. He says, put on sober minds and be ready for action. I think the King James says, gird your loins, right? It's this summoning. Hope is an active rather than a passive pursuit. It requires the will. We have to set our minds on the promises of God, on the grace that will be brought to us rather than the false promises of the world. And notice there's a shift. It's this military kind of metaphor to a familial metaphor. He says, you are obedient children, and you must listen and fear your father's authority. God, our adopted father, wants us to adopt his familial trait of holiness, right? He wants us to be assimilated to him, to to, to the new house rules that we are under, we were ransomed from our feudal ways ransomed from paganism ransomed from false religions ransomed from our rebellion and now we're part of God's family and now that we're part of his house there's new house rules and he's going to actually mold us and shape us he wants us to bear a family resemblance to him and that image of ransom is so powerful its the idea of this being of being bought out of a slave market we're no longer slaves to sin but we are slaves to righteousness We have a new power, a new principle operating in us by the Holy Spirit. We turn from our former ignorance through knowledge of Christ toward holiness. And the language again echoes the Exodus, as Peter quotes from Leviticus 11.44, which calls for Israel's holiness in light of their deliverance out of Egypt in slavery. Be holy because I saved you. Not I will save you if you become holy. But he says, I delivered you from your bondage to Egypt. Now you belong to me. Right? You used to serve Pharaoh and used to do what he wanted, but now you serve me and you do what I want. And God's purpose is always for freedom. Right, Freedom is not being able to do whatever you want. It's being able to do what you ought. It's being, being able to be and act the way that you were created to be, the way that you were created to act. So slavery to God is true freedom. And for the freedom of man is really slavery to sin. So you be holy because I'm holy because I've adopted you, you're part of my house, and I want you to look like me. So through Jesus Christ, God brings about our salvation as he ransoms us from sin by the payment of his blood that we might live for his glory. And this should set a new mindset. Be sober-minded. In other words, take life seriously. Understand what's really going on. Sometimes people think that Christianity is just, you know, pie in the sky, you're just, you know, making up myths and stories to make yourself feel better. But in reality, Christianity looks... At death, straight in the eye, it looks at at corruption and sin, straight in the eye, and says, "You are real, you are devastating, but there is a hope that surpasses the grip of sin and death." Christianity is realistic to the core. I mean, it understands human nature perfectly, just how wicked we can be, and that's why he says, "Have a serious mindset, understand the hope that you are being promised, understand." the the glory of what's coming. Set your hope fully on it. Be single-minded. Be stubborn in your pursuit because one day what you hope for will be revealed in full. So future hope animates present action, animates present holiness as we journey as sojourners and exiles through the wilderness in exile, heading towards our ultimate home. And all of this comes as a gracious gift from the merciful hands of the triune God. That is what it means for God's grace and peace to be multiplied to you.